Ad blocking is exploding. Here's how to fight back. And this is what makes your fans tick. This is episode 44 of Media Unplugged, the podcast that goes behind the spin to reveal what's really happening in media. Media Unplugged with Tom A. Sacker and Mark Ramsey. Welcome to Media Unplugged. I'm Mark Ramsey. And I'm Tom A. Sacker. Tom, ad blocking is exploding. Here's how to fight back. Well, we know it's exploding, that's for sure, from the headline in uh, this week's ad age. Ad blocking to grow 34% this year to nearly 70 million U.S. web users, en route to 87 million in 2017. Tom, this is unbelievable. Listen to this. U.S. Internet users running ad blockers will grow this year to 70 million, or 26% of web users in the U.S., from 52 million or 20% last year, wow. and they're projecting next year it's going to go to 32%. So just laying that out clearly, that's from 20 to 32% in two years, from one in five to one in three in two years. So next year, one-third of web users will be blocking ads. That's right, one-third. And by the way, I think it's worth noting that, you know, this isn't one of those things where people wake up one day and say, you know, I've been blocking web ads now for a couple of years. That's enough. <laughs> I'll stop. Oh, man. It looks like the battle for attention is heating up. Let me ask you something. I, I was curious about this. Don't ask me why I think about things like this, but have you ever seen an ad for an ad blocker? I mean, that would be <laughs> ironic as hell. I remember it's like the late comedian Mitch Hedberg. He said that he was against picketing, but he doesn't know how to show it. <laughs> No, I have not seen an ad for an ad blocker. And of course, the reason is because its functionality sells itself. It doesn't require advertising to sell it all. You you know, it's a function of search, right? But that's such a great point. But I mean, this does beg the question, given the fact that this is only going to increase, that ad blocking is only going to get worse. And by the way, most of it's right now on desktop. It's still relatively sparse on mobile. I predict that will change. Um, and I already indicated to you on a previous show that I've got somebody right downstairs from me who's using ad blockers on Pandora. Right. So they're not playing the, paying the premium for Pandora. They're blocking the ads, and they're doing it every single day, day in, day out. Wow. I mean, what's the solution to this problem? <laughs> the solution? Well, I can tell you that there's something's going to happen. I mean, when the, you think about the, uh, the peahen, the polygamous peahen. So it <laughs> turns away from the strutting peacock, and he just moves around in front of her and shakes his ass again. The same thing will happen as polygamous consumers turn away from the strutting advertisers. They're going to figure a way to maneuver themselves back out in front. I mean, I don't know about you. I keep unsubscribing from newsletters and blocking phone callers. Somehow mm -hmm. they keep putting me back on lists or so use different numbers, something. But they keep getting through. They do. But is that is that um, the best way? Is that evolution? <laughs> is that evolution, or is just that is that just hastening the demise for the for the platform altogether from an advertising perspective? I mean, I I don't feel like it's a solution to the problem as much as a temporary route around to the problem. One of the things that we had uh, talked about here was a piece from uh, David Aker, who is kind of the legendary uh, academic uh, marketing, branding, advertising uh, guy. And the title was Pepsi Introduces an Internal Content Agency. And this was fascinating to me for a couple of reasons. Number one, because it seemed like nothing more than one big ad for Pepsi's internal content agency. <laughs> but I'll leave that aside. Um, Pepsi has announced the creation of a content agency studio in Manhattan called Creators League that will service the Pepsi organization by curating and producing real-time content. It will start with 10 to 15 employees, which by Pepsi standards is nothing, mm. 
and build from there, eventually doing work for outside uh, for clients outside of Pepsi as well, which we call an aspiration, not a guarantee or a promise. But what was really interesting about this piece, I thought, was his take on the directionality of the trend. He said, when the marketing budget was largely employed to run advertisements and legacy print and broadcast media, an essential component was the creative message and its presentation. A long lead time was available and needed <laughs> to create and test the right ads. As a result, a large advertising industry thrived. When digital became a major portion of the marketing budget, things are very different. The goal is no longer a lengthy campaign with a few ads, but rather a variety of content much of which needs to be live within hours or days. So in other words, this internal organization <laughs> that Pepsi's creating is their attempt to create uh, uh, content uh, that is homegrown, closer to the brand, uh, speedier, more agile, and of course, uh, maybe most of all, less expensively. What say you? Well, look, first of all, that, that, uh, that Acker post in Medium, yeah. he deleted it. <laughs> I know he deleted it. I had to go to his blog to find it again. It's so yeah. funny you say that. Why do you think he deleted it? Somebody said something. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, what I find interesting is what you what you just said. I mean, the contention that once upon a time, an essential mm -hmm. component of advertising was the creative message, right? Mm -hmm. And its mm -hmm. and its presentation. But with digital, ah, oh, you just churn it out. Churn it out, baby. And see, during a recent cons panel at that creativity conference they have, mm -hmm. P&G's global brand officer, Mark Pritchard, he, but this is what mm -hmm. he acknowledged. He said, quote, there's a lot of crap content out there. Get, guess mm -hmm. ready, Mark. We're going to get a lot more of this. <laughs> you ain't seen nothing yet because they're cheap to create, to produce, right. and they're cheap to spread around. And, you know, well, not Pr only that. Pritchard agreed. Listen, let me tell you what he said. He said, mm -hmm. because of all these technologies out there, a lot mm -hmm. of people are going out there and producing, ourselves included, a lot of <laughs> crap. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Well, but, you know... <laughs> That's the guy who just broke the law explaining to children why they shouldn't break the law, too. I know. I mean, how are you supposed to live to that ideal if you're one of the primary perps? <laughs> Look, he said they have videos that they produced that have like four views. <laughs> now, he was probably just trying to, you know, a little so, Tom, hyperbole. What? <laughs> but what, what, I mean, so, but what is the answer here for these guys? So, yeah, the tools what's are the, cheap. The, the tools question? are easy. What's the they question? have smaller. The question is, <laughs> how do I get point. people to buy my soap? The question is, how do I get people to buy my stuff? Yes, <laughs> yeah. I, I was pondering this same thing uh, the other week when I did the conference I was a part of. And I had people with one podcast after another. We're launching this podcast. We're launching that podcast. We have another podcast <laughs> launching. And I'm thinking, where is all this listening going to come from other than other listening to other podcasts and a little bit of listening to radio, too, along the way? I mean, where is this time? There's only 24 hours in the day. I mean, how much time do I possibly have to devote to this content? It's got to come from somewhere else. So are we creating more stuff that's going to generate more attention and consumption for our, our, our goods and services? Or are we simply going through the motions? I told you, the problem is that there's no, it's a supply and demand problem. There is no cost for some retired <laughs> person to sit in their basement and record a podcast and stick it out there. You know, so... <laughs> 
we're going to have a lot of people retiring soon. All these baby boomers who know how to use these microphones and do podcasts. So what prevents it from just blowing up? What's the downside other than somebody's wife yelling at them to get out of the basement and mow the lawn? Or people from major brands uh, proclaiming that there's too much crap content out there. <laughs> That's right. And uh, even we are guilty of creating it. Now let's go enjoy the rest of the conference. Yeah, listen, the, <laughs> the, 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 the solution to the problem that you're, out, you know, you're laying out here for everyone is in the next segment that we're going to do. And that is figure out what people desire and try to give it to them. Ah, what a great, what a great uh, segue. You are listening to Media Unplugged with Tom Asecker and Mark Ramsey. This is what makes your fans tick. Tom, it's from a piece in Strategy and Business. The title is Fan Favorites. And uh, the quick summary at the top there, in order to build engagement and loyalty in a climate of intense competition and distraction, media companies have to understand their companies, their customers, viewers, and readers as fans. Now, in concept, that sounds not only simple, but... Um, <laughs> but obvious. terribly familiar. Yeah. yeah, obvious and something that we've been doing for many years. Here's, I guess, the, 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 the way the article puts it. In the television industry, um, an executive says, we're drowning in data and starving for insights. Marketers and creatives often see audiences and customers as passive assemblies of listeners or spectators, but we believe it's more useful to view them as active participants. The best analogy may be fans, though traditional demographics may give us basic information about who fans are and where they're located. Current methods of understanding and measuring engagement are missing the answers to two essential questions, and here's where we get to the point you just made a moment ago. Number one, why is a fan motivated? And number two, what triggers the fan's behavior, That's right? It. That's it. Listen, you know, first of all, the, the quote from the TV executive, we're drowning in data and starving insights. I think people think now that they, we have big data, that this is something new. A, C, a CMO friend of mine from a major footwear brand, he said the exact same thing to me 15 years ago. <laughs> he, he showed me stacks of stuff on his desk. He said, Tom, I don't need any more data. I need to know what to do with this data, <laughs> right? Because why? Because why is insights of the holy grail of strategic marketing? Because marketing is about innovation and value creation. It isn't mm -hmm. about spreading messages. So I agree with the premise of the article. Right? I think it was a great article. View your audience as active participants. What does that mean? It means view your audience as someone who is doing it for a particular reason. They're extracting mm -hmm. some kind of value out of participating with you. The question then becomes, how do we connect with these people, figure out what that value is, and then go deeper into our relationship with them to give them the value that they want. Mark, this would be like us 50 years ago saying to some uh, movie producer, you know, you should try merchandising. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I mean, it, it sounds really simple, but the problem is when you start working with companies to get them to innovate, to create value by having mm -hmm. different, you know, out of the box services and connections and websites and content and meetings and venues and merchandise, they start losing it. They, what they say, wait a minute, that's not the business we're in. Yeah, it's, it's, it's useful to remember that the deal George Lucas made way back when with 20th Century Fox when he made Star Wars was that uh, 
you guys own the rights to Star Wars, but I'm going to keep the rights to merchandising. <laughs> and they said, merchandise, come on, George, good luck with that. Exactly. <laughs> right. Now take a look at the numbers, right? That's right. So here are a couple of illustrations they give, which I think, you know, shed some light on this. Um, they refer to what they ref what they call fan mindsets, um, and they and the, this example is from the music industry. A common fan mindset among Americans interested in music is the quote vocalist, as the name implies. Vocalists frequently listen to music and sing along, most often in the car. Their mood drives their choice of song and genre. They don't go out of their way to attend concerts or festivals even though they're more likely than most music fans to play and create music. The mindset is a combination of play, identification, and creation, but a vocalist is not motivated by social connection or advocacy. That versus another category called mixologist, whose passion is tied closely to friends, family, and other fans. These are the people who go to the concerts. They're interested in social connection. In other words, two groups of fans, right, yep. equal in their passion for the category, but who are motivated by very, very different things. And the sum up is, if media producers can understand the objects and actions that inspire certain fan mindsets... They will be better able to create content and activities that can help those fans engage more deeply with a given team, story, or brand. That's it. Listen, Mark, it's about innovation. I like the example he gives using the TV show Scandals, right? Mm -hmm. He said some viewers may watch it because they're fashionistas and they can't wait to see the newest wardrobe of Kerry Washington. Others mm -hmm. may watch because they're obsessed with politics and want to see how the newly introduced Donald Trump-like character will behave. Now, mm -hmm. imagine sitting with your people and innovating around these groups. Okay, if people are watching this because they're fashionistas, what more content can we give them? What additional value will enhance who these people are and what they think of themselves and what they're looking for? And then mm -hmm. you let people innovate around the desires of their audiences, the things that are motivating them. You know, listen. Now, Tom, what? <laughs> th this is not, though, necessarily mutually exclusive with Pepsi's efforts at having an internal content agency, right? No, that's not what they're doing. They're, they're trying, <laughs> they're throwing stuff against the wall, seeing what sticks, <laughs> trying to get eyeballs. You know, what, you know what they're doing. They're trying to get eyeballs. There's a difference between creating what I call self-enhancing components of value. And every brand should be doing that. They should be trying to figure out how to weave in as many of these things as they possibly can into their offering, mm -hmm. right? And, and like I said, it's not that these models don't exist. Look, I have a model. I've handed it to people. I've worked with companies. That's not the challenge to get a model in your hand. Mm -hmm. It's to mm -hmm. get your teams to innovate and create those values because there's some internal resistance to doing that. And I've especially found that with media brands. Now, how is that different? How is this process of finding the kind of the, 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 the core that drives uh, different fan groups and the triggers that drive those groups, how is that different from what we might refer to as standard segmentation? Well, well I wouldn't say it's much different at all. What, what I'm saying is, is you need to look at what their drives are. Mm -hmm. So if you're, if you're segmenting and then you, you hand me the segmentation and I look at it and I don't see what, what people's desires are out of that segmentation, it doesn't mm. help me because now I can't innovate around that. So in other words, I don't need to know somebody's behaviors if I don't know how to influence those behaviors. 
So to tell mm -hmm. me that people shop at certain times or go to certain venues, that's great. What are they looking for? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that question. That question, exactly. <laughs> that's, that is the key to creating value, understanding what people want. Mm. Innovate around desires, right? Exactly. It's time for rants and raves, Tom. Oh, I've got a rant and rave. Oh, you do? Wow, a double. Okay. No, I don't. I'm ready. No, I'm teasing. I don't even know what this is. I don't even know what this is. I, I think this is a uh, just me talking. But I, I think people in media businesses, I honestly believe that they think sometimes that they're the only ones experiencing all this crazy pain of disruption mm -hmm. that's, mm -hmm. that because of all these marketplace forces going on. But they're not. I mean, it's hitting me. It's, hit, it's hitting you. It hits mm -hmm. everyone. Luxury brands. They've had to deal with, what, the stagnant economy and, the, and this, this cultural demonizing of the rich. you got mainstream consumer brands who are being attacked by waves of niche offerings. I mean, I just read about mm -hmm. a brewery that makes a beer called Iceberg Beer that uses glacial water harvested from 25,000-year-old <laughs> icebergs. All right? Talk about niche brand. Now, and again, you think there's like a stable industry. Right? Like, for example, I call them the end-of-life brands, like funeral homes. Mm -hmm. I read of, in Canada there's a funeral business that has jumped on the green wave, and they offer a service that dissolves the dead and then pours them into the town's sewers. Okay. Oh, great. Right? So listen, <laughs> so forget ashes to ashes, dust to dust. The owner says you come in by water and you leave by water. So, wow. so make no mistake, whatever business you're in, whatever you're presently doing today, it is going to change, assuming you want to survive in this crazy new marketplace of abundance. And to paraphrase good old Abe Lincoln, if the internet's correct, the best way to predict <laughs> that change is to create it. Excellent, Tom. <laughs> I'm stuck on that Canadian story. I can't get that out of my head. I, I know. Can you imagine that? <clears throat> I know. All right. I've got a couple. Uh, I think they're both rants this week. The first is from uh, Television News Daily, TV blog. And the title is, Why Anderson Cooper's Ban on Orlando Killer's Name is Wrong. Now, this is obviously in reference to the Orlando shooting uh, from a week or so ago, two weeks ago. And uh, I, apparently, at some point in the coverage, Anderson said, that's it. I'm not showing the shooter's picture anymore. I'm not naming the shooter by name anymore. He'll be referred to as the Orlando shooter. And here's what the writer says. The real problem with Anderson Cooper's name and photo ban of Omar Mateen is a journalistic one. For better or worse, the guy had a name, and since journalists are in the business of applying plain English to the reporting of stories, logic would dictate that this man's name be used when reporting on his deeds, no matter how heinous. Moreover, the profession of journalism requires that its practitioners work in a world in which facts matter and a person's name, even a killer's name, is a fact that cannot be wished away. And I think what this guy is missing hmm. is that, and which what Anderson Cooper realizes, is that we live in an era of fame and infamy, not just as separate sides of the same coin, but, Tom, the same side of the same mm -hmm. coin. There is no longer any difference, I think, to the average person seeking their 15 minutes of fame. And by the way, no one at all wants to stop at 15 minutes anymore. Right. Um, in this generation of MeTube, not YouTube, of uh, <laughs> selfie, um, the idea of notoriety 
uh, and uh, notorious behavior. I mean, th- th- this is this becomes an aspirational desire. And the question is, what's the quickest path to fame? Is it by landing a gig on uh, CBS's Big Brother, or is it by uh, shooting up a school um, and or a nightclub? And I think pretty clearly the attractions are obvious. And uh, I think Anderson's absolutely positively right that people are looking for the kind of fame that the media spotlight provides, and nothing provides a media spotlight like this kind of uh, shooting, whether we call it terrorism or shooting, I don't know, any kind of crime that creates this kind of drama and occupies the nation's headlines like this. I, I just think uh, he's right to remove from the man uh, the fame, which is the whole point of the pursuit. Right. So that's my take on it. You have any thoughts to add there? I don't know how you're going to stop it, Mark. No, I don't know how you can stop it either. Not, frankly, not, I think it's built into because of the way the media has, is is it's socialized now, right? No, you're you're right. You're absolutely right. But that doesn't mean Anderson's wrong. That just means Anderson will fail. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree with his sentiment 100. percent Here's the other rant. From the Washington Post, this is the one you and I talked about a little bit. Six in ten of you will share this link without reading oh, it, gee, a new depressing me. study says. That's a good one. <laughs> According to a new study by computer scientists at Columbia University, 59% of links shared on social media have never actually been clicked. In other words, most people appear to retweet news without ever reading it. Worse... The study finds that these sort of blind peer-to-peer shares are really important in determining what news gets circulated and what just fades off the public radar. (laughs) People are more willing to share an article than read it. This is typical of modern information consumption. People form an opinion based on a summary or a summary of summaries without making the effort to go deeper or, Tom, in this case, on the title (laughs) of a summary of summaries. This article even indicated that science, a, a publication called um, Science Post, printed an article that was full of nothing but lorem ipsum text under a headline <laughs> that said, that said, study 70% of Facebook users only read the headline of science stories before commenting, and 46,000 people shared the post. <laughs> <laughs> so what's scary about this, Tom, is that It's absolutely right. Um, The stuff we share, we're not interested in reading. We're only interested in sharing it. Sharing is actually more important than reading it. And even (laughs) the act of sharing it creates... Create uh, puts things that the, it's like hits are created not by listening to the song but by sharing the song. It's really remarkable. <laughs> you know? And I guess why do I share it? I share it because my identity is more important than reading all that uh, awful text. My my social status is going to be determined by sharing something that you'll likewise not read and pass on. I don't know, but this is where we are in the modern information economy. <laughs> Mark, I. I don't think it's, I don't know if it's the modern information economy, but it reminds me, I was going someplace, that, and, it, and there was, it was somewhere near a beach somewhere, and, and this, I said to this guy, I said, I'm heading down here on Saturday. He said, oh, you got to go to this place right on the boardwalk there and have, have one of the famous Chinese chop suey sandwiches. And I said, what? And, and so I said, all right. So I go down there, and I'm with my daughter, and I walk up to this place. I order two of these sandwiches. And I give one to my daughter, and I have one, and mm-hmm. it's kind of like a hamburger bun with like chop suey on top of it. I mean, it was, <laughs> and and I took a bite, and and I I looked at her, and she took a bite of this thing, and she said, "What is? I'm not eating this." And she gave it back to me, and uh, she said, he, "She said, did, did he ever eat one of these?" 
And, and when I saw him the next week, I asked him, I said, have you ever eaten one of those? He said, no, I never had one. I just heard that they're the best things. <laughs> there you go. There it is. <laughs> That's Media Unplugged for this week. Please remember to subscribe to us at iTunes or on Stitcher. And while you're there, please rate the show. It helps other folks to discover us. You can also catch us at SoundCloud, Radio Inc., Media Village, and the American Marketing Association. You can follow Tom on Twitter at Tom Asacker and Mark at Mark Ramsey Media. Send us your questions and comments using hashtag Media Unplugged. If there's a media topic you want us to cover, tweet us. You can read the show notes and share the show at our website, MediaUnplugged.net. You know, Tom, at this point in the show, we should have like a secret word or something just for anyone who listens this far. They get the secret word and they get some kind of value out of it. I don't know. We got to figure that, that would out. That be good. Hey, Mark, one other thing. If whatever happens in Britain, is that going to affect the woman that does our uh, voice thing in the beginning? Yes. Uh-oh. She, she will no longer be part of oh, Europe. Oh, man. All right. <laughs> Special thanks to the producer of Media Unplugged, Jeff Schmidt. Exciting audio for media. You can find him at jeff-schmidt.com. For Tom Asacker, I'm Mark Ramsey. Thank you for listening. Media Unplugged.